This morning, I want to direct your attention for a few minutes to the 20th chapter of the book of Exodus. Most, if not all of you, perhaps know down to verse 17 by heart. And therefore, this chapter is not new to you. But perhaps because it is so familiar to us, it wouldn't be a bad idea to go over some of the ground, the old ground, once again, and see if we can find a, an application uh, of the commandments that are stated therein, both as they are stated and also as they might apply in a higher fashion, namely the higher commands of our Lord. Now, if we take the first command, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, we know that its primary application has to do with the making or fashioning of graven images of wood or metal or stone and setting them up as one of the principal so-called Christian churches do and bow down and worship them. This, of course, is a great evil. And in spite of that church's desire to gloss over it and to make it seem as if they are not worshiping graven images, they are in fact doing so, and therefore they are contravening this first and great commandment. But as we think about it, we see that there is a higher application of this first commandment, and that has to do with mental idolatry. What is an idol, anyway? An idol is anything upon which the mind is inordinately set. Anything at all that your mind is inordinately set is an idol. It doesn't have to be made of wood and stone and metal. And so when we think upon the things upon which the minds of men and even of brethren are inordinately set, we find a whole new catalog opens up to us. Money is worshipped in this country by everybody, whether they like to admit it or not. Truly did the apostle say that money is the root of all evil. People worship all kinds of things today. Pleasure is an object of worship. Many people in the plants and offices that you work in have only one objective, and that is to wait till Friday so they can enjoy themselves to the full on Saturday and Sunday before they have to return to the drudgery of the job again for another five days before they can have more pleasure the next weekend. The system under which we operate the capitalistic system, I'm not saying whether it's good or bad, but it does lend itself to the worship of pleasure and comforts. Many women, sisters, worship the comforts of their home. Many people worship things that they don't think are contravening this first commandment. Thousands of people worship their gardens, 
or their home. And hundreds of thousands of people worship their children. And the first time you meet them, they'll reach in their pocket and say, just a minute, I just happen to have a picture of my family. Here, look at them. And you say, my, they're wonderful children. It's marvelous. And they say, they certainly are. There's nothing like it. They worship their children. There's a new cult that has arisen in the last few years among women. The worship of hair. The hair of the head. It used to be that people combed their hair and that was that. But no more. Now they have all kinds, billions of dollars worth of preparations are spent in this country on the worship of the hair of the heads of the women of this country. In the high school that I attended, they put out an annual book, and they had a page, the title of which was Jokes. And I remember the first joke on the issue that I have in mind was this. He is a self-made man, and oh, how he worships his creator. So another object of worship, of idolatry, is self, human pride. You know, one of the greatest strengths of the Christadelphian movement or religion is the fact that we have no preachers, no paid ministers. This is a great source of strength. And if we ever get to the point where we have paid ministers, you will see a serious decline in the spiritual health of the body. And this is good. But there's also an evil attached to it. And that is that a young brother, having become baptized and perhaps um, being shoved along a little fast, is put on the platform. And he is taught by his elders and by his relatives that the principal function of a Christian is to get on the platform and have something to say. Nothing, brethren and sisters, could be farther from the truth. The principal function of Christadelphians is not to get on the platform and have something to say or be an orator that people want to hear. And the principal function of attending the service on Sunday morning is not to hear the speaker, but to remember our absent Lord. So you have this brother speaking. First thing you know, he's asked to speak in another city. And then he's asked to speak at a gathering where people come from many cities to hear him. And the first thing you know, this brother strokes his lapels, and he thinks that his words are very good, and that he should be listened to in the councils of our group. A very evil thing, this matter, the worship of self or pride. God, however, tells us in the fifth verse of this chapter that he is a jealous God and that he wants our undivided attention. And our Master says that we should seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto us. Coming now to the seventh verse, Namely, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. The primary application of this is, of course, the universal practice of profanity in this country. When I say this country, I mean North America. That's the country we know. I'm not trying to say that the Americans are any worse than other inhabitants on this continent. 
profanity, a great evil. And you that work in shops and offices know that it is universally practiced. And a lot of people think, oh, they would never dream of using the word, uh, the name of the Lord, their God, in vain. And yet they think nothing of using corrupting language having to do with his name or his dwelling place. And so they say, by Gad, by golly, good God, Good heavens, or all heavens, all these things are really taking the name of the Lord our God in vain, and the fact that one letter is changed doesn't alter it. They should be avoided. But there is a higher application of this commandment, too. We, brethren and sisters, have taken the name of the Lord our God. By nature, we are sons of Adam and under condemnation. But by adoption, we have been called to be the sons of God. Our name has been changed. We have taken on a new name. We are new creatures in Christ Jesus. Have we taken on that name in vain? Well, the answer is going to be, of course, at the judgment seat of Christ. Unless... We have run the race successfully. We have taken on the name in vain. It's been a vain thing to take it on unless we are successful. And therefore, the admonition, of course, is to so run that we will attain the crown of life. Let us look for a minute at the 10th verse which has to do with the Sabbath. Now, I want to read the 14th chapter of Romans in this connection. Verse 5. Where the Apostle Paul talks about the Sabbath day, and he says, One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Now, we keep a day of rest, the Sabbath, on Sunday in this country. And while it is true that every day is reckoned by those who are fully persuaded to be alike, yet I like to think of Sunday as a day just a little bit different from the other days of the week. And in this connection, I want to read you from the 58th chapter of Isaiah, the last two verses. Although this isn't a commandment now, and we know that, nevertheless, I think the, the higher application perhaps has something to do with our existence now. And here Isaiah, admonishing the children of Israel, says, If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord, honorable, and shalt honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words. I don't know what it's like down here, but 
up our way, people are awfully busy all the time. Busy, busy, busy. They never have time to do anything except be busy. And it seems to me like it's a good idea that the government of the country has set aside a day of rest when businesses, offices, and the hurly-burly of life come to a cease and we can worship God after the dictates of our own conscience. And so I feel that it is a good idea to sort of set this day aside as a day when we contemplate upon the things of God, not doing our own pleasure, but doing those things and thinking about those things which he has written down for our admonition. I think, too, that if you have a stranger, an alien, who has a bit of feeling for Sunday, you perhaps have an indication that that man or woman is perhaps material to work on, to preach the truth to. Small thing, small indication, but nevertheless, I think, a real one. And since this day has been set aside, the first day of the week, not only by the government of the country, but by the apostles as the day on which we break bread and remember our absent Lord, then we should take that also to heart. And under no conditions should we forsake the assembling of ourselves together to remember our absent Lord and to partake of the emblems which he has set on the table before us. No excuse should be offered for absenteeism from the table of the Lord, barring, of course, ill health or incapacity to attend. But all these other reasons, that it's too hot or too cold, or it's not convenient, or we're expecting company, or we have to get a meal ready, or all these other reasons that are not valid shouldn't be offered to avoid the attending at the breaking of bread. Let us now look at the next commandment. We won't take them all, but I do want to talk about number the verse 13, namely, thou shalt not kill. Now, Jesus mentioned a higher law in this connection, and I want to read it. It's in the fifth of Matthew, famous Sermon on the Mount. Many of you know this by heart, too, but we'll just read it anyway. It's in the fifth of Matthew at verse 21. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And so Jesus raises up this bare commandment up into a higher plane where he says that thou shalt not kill, but it means more than just taking a rifle and shooting somebody. It has a much higher application. And it even has a higher application than what is mentioned here in this verse. You know, you can kill somebody, and a lot of people do, by very different methods 
than taking a rifle and shooting them or a hatchet and cutting off their head. Hundreds of thousands of people have been killed by the slow process of living with a mate who has an evil disposition. The steady drip, day in and day out, of an evil, nagging, cantankerous disposition can kill a man or a woman just as readily as taking a rifle and shooting them. And if you have that kind of a disposition, resolve this minute to get rid of it. Because this commandment, in my opinion, is just as applicable to that as it is to taking a rifle and shooting somebody. This commandment applies to all actions by which life may be shortened or abridged. All actions. And that takes in quite a lot. And so if you are, if you've been around people who have this evil disposition, who are constantly complaining about the setup, about their lot, about their house, about their clothes, about how much money their husband makes or doesn't make, and so on and so forth, you will find that a killing is going on in that household. And it's evil, and it's commanded against. Also, if it's in your power, not only to not shorten life or abridge it, but to save life, and it isn't done, that also is wrong. Picture the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. When the, the priest and the Levite walked down the road and found the man wounded and passed by on the other side, they didn't do him any harm. They didn't pick up another stone and fling it at him. They just ignored him. This is wrong too. So that any action which fails to save life or to help somebody, if it's in your power to do so, uh, should be done. That action should be done positively, and not just the action of ignoring him. The parable of the Good Samaritan has much to say on that point. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Adultery, of course, is defined as the unfaithfulness of a married person, strictly commanded against. But it includes a much broader classification even than that. It includes fornication, which is unlawful behavior of single people. And you know as well as I do that this unlawful behavior is widespread on this continent. In fact, if you can believe some university studies that have been made, it's almost universal, promiscuous and licentious behavior, strictly commanded against. No such thing as not doing it in excess or doing it in moderation or all these things that people tell you. This commandment says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. 
And that's exactly what it means. Now this also, I think, has a further application. There's a lot of stuff goes on that isn't really fornication or adultery, but is nauseating in the nostrils of God. And I refer to all kinds of dirty stories, filthy jokes, things that have a double meaning when people talk to you, so on. Filthy pictures, uh, novels, bestsellers that are filled with filth. People tell you it's art. It isn't. It's filth. All these things are comprehended, I think, under this commandment. So that our actions and, and conduct should be on a much different level from the people around us. You know, you read in the book of Exodus about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you think, my goodness, those people must have been evil. Just think. The evil that was going on in Sodom. God saw fit to destroy the whole thing. Must have been terrible. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, it was terrible, but it isn't half as terrible as what's going on in America today. There's more means of propagating evil by means of printed matter, photographic matter, television, radio, and all these other things that are being poured out into the American mind daily than there ever was or ever could be in Sodom and Gomorrah. Millions and millions of magazines and material of all that stuff is sold every week in Canada and the United States, and people read it. So don't ever think that we're any purer than they were in Sodom and Gomorrah. And God is going to visit the nations of the earth in his due course with exactly the same punishment. The slain of the Lord, says the prophet Jeremiah, shall be from one end of the earth even to the other end of the earth. Up here in Chicago, they have a, an institute called the Moody Bible Institute, started by a man named Dwight L. Moody. Some of you may have heard him preach. Anyway, the story goes that there's a young man in the tent, and he heard Dr. Moody give a fiery speech, very impressed. And he walked up to him after the lecture was closed, and he said, I listened to you, Dr. Moody. I'm very impressed, but there's one thing I want to know. He said, if I join your church and do what you're telling me here tonight, do I have to give up the world? And Dr. Moody says, listen, young man, if you join my church and you do what I'm telling you, the world will give you up. And isn't it the truth? Let me read you the sixth chapter of Luke at verse 22. And if you haven't got this underlined in your Bible, and you like underlining Bibles, this is a verse to underline. Here's what the Master says. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company. Now, I don't know what it's like down here, but up our way, you don't have to get very far out 
You know, you throw a stone into a pond and the circles go farther and farther. You don't have to get very far from where that stone hit, which we'll say is the ecclesia. Out into the world, before you find out that they don't want you if you're doing the commandments of God. You don't have to worry about being separate. They'll separate you, and very fast. Blessed, says Jesus, are ye when they shall separate you from their company. You cannot serve two masters. You can't run with them and serve your master at the same time, because the two companies never get together. Another application of this, you see, as you get into these things, you just read a verse. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Fine, we understand that. Let's go on to the next one. But as you get into these things, you see there's much more to it than just that. God has seen fit, and I won't dwell on this because the time is going, to liken adultery to false worship. Now let's read the third chapter of Jeremiah on this point. A false system of worship is likened to an adulterer. If you read the third chapter of Jeremiah from verses 6 to 9, you will see that the nation of Israel because of their false system of worship, was styled as playing the harlot. And, and God said, I said, on, I said, after she had done all these things, turn thou unto me. But she returned not, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. And it came to pass through the likeness of her whoredom that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and with stocks. In other words, the rearing up of images of stone and of wood is likened unto an adulterous woman. So that one thing we must be positively sure of, and that is that we are separate in our worship. Have you ever heard some brother or somebody tell you, oh, well, they can go into a Christian church or any place at all or out in the bush, and they can worship God just as well as they can around the table of the Lord. You ever heard anybody say that? You must have, because people do. Well, the only thing wrong with that is, is that it's false. They can't worship God out there in another church, because this is likened, and the whole system out there is likened unto a mother of harlots and the abomination of the earth. So one thing we must be positively clear on is that in our system of worship, when we worship God, it must be in spirit and in truth. No falsehood is to be intermingled with it. I want to pass on now to the last couple of commandments before I close. Thou shalt not steal... Now, a lot of people have a very funny idea about what that means. 
A lot of people wouldn't dream of going into a supermarket and picking up a package of gum and putting it in their pocket and walking out without paying for it. And that is their conception of this commandment, thou shalt not steal. As long as they don't do anything like that, and mind you, that's true, they shouldn't. I'm not advocating that you stuff gum in your pocket. But that's by no means all there is to it. Thou shalt not steal takes into consideration the taking advantage of a buyer's or a seller's ignorance. Now, let me give you an example. We had a brother in London, Ontario, very fine young brother. He had married with two children. He bought a nice house in a survey. Everything was fine. I visited there many times. It was beautifully furnished, nice trees out in front, lovely. There was only one catch to it, and that is that the basement flooded. Every time there was a rainstorm or even a wet spell, the basement was full of water, and he had the basement fixed up with a nice recreation room with tile on the floor and furniture around, you know how it would be, and it was ruined by the inundation of this water. Well, it got so bad that they decided they'd have to move, get out of there. Now, what do you do? Do you sell your house in a dry spell to the new buyer, say nothing about this water? He had plumbers and sewer contractors and everybody else trying to fix this situation, but nothing seemed to fix it. It was on a kind of a side of a hill, and there were springs or something there that just were not fixable. Now, what do you do? Do you wait till the driest part of the summer, and then you hang a for sale sign on it and get the man in and then move out, let him worry about the water, or do you, do you tell him? Now, look, if you buy this house, this, is, this basement is, is ruined. It's, it's, um, it's no good for you. These are the sort of things that are comprehended in this commandment. Anything that withholds truth or half-truths that doesn't present the full picture to your hearer is really uh, not just the thing to do. Smaller things even than that. There's an argument goes on, a debate. One brother uh, believes a verse says one thing, another brother thinks it says, means something else. So in a Bible class or something, there's a debate, and uh, the two opinions are quite opposite. Now, one brother presents an argument, let us say, that really is valid. It really does, to a, a reasonable mind, uh, explain the verse. And the other brother, in his heart, really knows that his argument is flat, that it's void by this final argument the other brother brought up. Is it honest to carry on still debating the thing which they do? This honest? By no means. It just isn't. Those are the types of things that we must deal with when we look at this commandment, thou shalt not steal. We all come to a Bible school. And we start talking. Well, it isn't long before we start talking about one another. We all like each other and, and so on and so forth. And um, so you start talking about Brother Jones or somebody up somewhere. You say, my, he's a fine brother. He spoke down here and he and his wife are wonderful people. They're just marvelous. We like them so much. Well, what happens? Does the other brother or sister say, yeah, that's right. They are a wonderful couple. Yeah, I agree with you. They might. 
But they also say, yes, they are a wonderful couple. They're, they're just marvelous. But I'll tell you something about them that you don't know. And in effect, they are stealing that brother's reputation. A very evil thing. And one which should be avoided at all costs. Certainly the other brother has some butts. And so does the other sister. We all have butts. But it isn't for us to point out the butts and the ifs and the ends about every brother up and down the country because we're stealing his reputation. And if that other brother thinks that that reputation is high, leave it there and don't undercut it. Thou shalt not bear false witness. That means in plain English that we're not to tell lies, not to go around lying, telling falsehoods. Well, there's a lot of people that have a very funny idea about that, too, about what constitutes a lie. They say there's a white lie, this color lie, and that color lie. I don't know what these mean. They're all lies. doesn't matter what color. And it's a very bad thing to do. A lot of people are so used to flavoring and coloring the stories that they tell that they've almost forgotten how to tell the unvarnished truth. Now let me read from Hebrews, the fourth chapter, and verse 12, because you may be able to kid me or fool me that what you say is the truth, but listen to this. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You may be able to fool or to hoodwink another brother on something, but you can't fool or hoodwink God because all things are naked before him with whom we have to do. There's just one other thing I want to mention in, in connection with this commandment. I read a book. Not, it was written up, uh, reviewed in our uh, local newspaper in Hamilton. And um, it sounded pretty good, and I got it. And this is one point that the, the uh, writer brought out that I think is, is worth mentioning here. I hadn't thought of it before, but I think it's worth mentioning. Have you ever heard a brother or a sister tell you that they know the motive of why a brother or a sister acted that way? They can tell you, you see. Brother and sister does something. They look at it at a distance and they say, Now, I know why he or she did that. They can tell you the motive. Now, this writer said, there's only one thing wrong with that, and that is it isn't true. If you claim to know the motive of, why, of how I act, you are in effect appropriating to yourself the gift of the Holy Spirit. If I asked anybody in this room I trust, have you got the gift of the Holy Spirit, you'd say, no, haven't got it. Fine. Therefore, you cannot discern the thoughts and intents of a brother's mind. You just can't do it. 
And if you claim to know the motive of why a brother or sister is acting that way, you are appropriating to yourself the gift of the Holy Spirit to discern the thoughts and intents of the mind and to read the thoughts, which you can't do. Therefore, you cannot ever say that you know the motive of why a brother and sister acted that way. So if you're in the habit, or if I'm in the habit of doing that, this morning is a good morning to let that practice stop. It is not bearing true witness when you say that. It is bearing false witness because none of us really know why people act the way they do. We may think we do. We may think we've got this all figured out, why it all happened. But the real truth may be totally different from that altogether. Now, lastly, and then I'm going to sit down. I could spend, brother, presiding brother, said, now look, we don't want you to speak too long. We don't want you to speak too short. Just right. I don't know what just right is. But I could spend the rest of the day on number the Tenth Commandment, namely, Thou shalt not covet. But I'm only going to spend a couple of minutes. Now, th this, this commandment is, is one that we all should give, I think, a great deal more thought to than we do. What do we mean by covet, anyway? Covet means to, to be inordinately desirous or excessively eager to obtain or to possess something. You're, you're very anxious to, to possess what the other person has. It's excessive want. Uh, now, like many other things, these things don't come in singly. They come in pairs. And these, there's two things that are like twins. Or like scissors, two blades of a scissors. You, in order to cut, you need them both. And the two blades are covetousness, which pertains to things, and jealousy, which pertains to people. And both usually occur within the same brain. If you have somebody who's very covetous, you'll also have the same person very jealous, and vice versa. You can't have one without the other, as the saying goes. What is jealousy or envy? First of all, it's a great evil. And secondly, it's a poison. You show me a brother that is jealous, and I'll show you a brother that is constantly pumping poison through his whole system. Not only does his mind become affected, but it even has an effect upon the body. You've seen people break out with skin rashes and so on because of intense jealousy that they have one toward another. And so jealousy is defined to be discontent at the sight of another's excellence or good fortune accompanied by some degree of hatred or desire to possess equal advantage. Now Christ taught us to take heed and beware of covetousness and jealousy. The trouble is that this capitalistic system under which we live fosters covetousness and jealousy. The whole system feeds on covetousness and jealousy. It feeds on new cars and new washing machines and new hairdos and new boats and motors and this and that. The whole system is fed and watered and nurtured on covetousness and jealousy. 
But remember the words of Jesus when he said, A man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things that he possesses. It's a great evil that prevails this jealousy. I want to, to um, show you how, how evil this thing is. Shouldn't mention this, but I'm going to because I I I I I, I think it it shows the problem. Many years ago, at the Canadian Bible School, we had a large crowd, larger than this, almost twice as large. I think we had about 300 people, adults and children. Well, on Saturday night, at the beginning, outside they had a, a board, a bulletin board, on the outside of the building, and. On, uh, on that board, they had a page to put your name down for the teacher you wanted to go to. So we had nine teachers, three, three, and three, in, in uh, three classes. So that whatever class you went into, you had a choice of three, right, each time. Well, um, everybody, all the teachers got up and gave a a short summary of what they were going to talk about. And uh, then the assembly was dismissed and they were all told to go out and sign their name on the different sheets so that the committee would know where to place the classes. Fine. Well, one brother was a teacher and a very good teacher too, a very excellent teacher, got 15 names in his class. I think the other one, the next number two, got perhaps 60, and the other one perhaps got 65. So there was 60, 65, and 15. Now this brother was so sick, and his wife was worse, that they, they practically, I didn't know whether they were going to be able to carry on or not. They have any relatives of mine. That's how I knew they were so sick. It ruined the Bible school for them. After the lists were signed and completed, the sister went around drumming up new recruits for the class, a, a great evil, terrible evil in my opinion. And uh, this is the sort of thing that was going on. Now, brothers and sisters, the purpose of a Bible school isn't competition as to who's going to have the biggest class. If a brother has 15 or 5 or 3 people that are interested in what he has to say, his purpose should be to say it and to, if by any means, he might further instruct those minds to do so to the best of his ability. And if some other brother has 150 in the next class to him, we have a very definite precept as to how that should be handled in everybody's mind, and that is in the epistle of Paul to the Romans where he says, in honor preferring one another. Now, if this brother in honor had preferred the other brethren, first of all, he would have been cleansed of the poison going through his mind, and so would his wife, and they would have had a much better time, and he would have been more effective teaching the 15 people that he had instead of worrying about what was going on in another classroom. Thou shalt not covet. And as I say, I could go on all morning uh, on this sort of thing, but I think I've aroused your, your, uh, your thought sufficiently to show you that these commands, and I see there's a class here in Christian uh, ethics, I think it is, or Christian conduct, 
the teachings of the Master, uh, these things will be covered. And I, and I exhort you to listen to them, because maybe we're not doing and cleansing our mind and, and having it on a high enough level in accordance with the precepts which we have laid down for us. Well, in conclusion, I just want to refer you to the, to the last chapter of the book of Revelation, where the blessing is indicated as to what the reward is going to be toward the people who will obey these commandments and the others uh, of like kind. And this is in the 22nd chapter of Revelation at verse 14, where the Apostle John says, Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city.